Good morning. You're probably wondering why the piano is up here. It's, uh, I decided that I would sing my message today, you know? <laughs> then I thought twice about it and decided that wasn't a good idea. So, <laughs> no, we just moved it down because it was up there. <laughs> it's a gravitational thing. Anyway, we're in the book of Nehemiah, and uh, we're actually, if you see your notes, it says we're looking at Nehemiah 7, 11 through 13. Uh, and to really accomplish all those chapters, I want to read one verse. So if you turn in your Bibles to chapter 13, verse 6, we're going to read this one verse. And if you don't mind, would you stand with me as we begin this message together? It reads as follows. It says, but, but while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem, for, the 30, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked his permission to come back to Jerusalem, and here I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done. Let's pray. Father God, I ask as we reflect on these chapters, these passages, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would speak into our lives that every one of us come in here, Lord, oftentimes with things that are right in the forefront of our thought life, things that concern us, things we struggle with, things we doubt. And there are other things, Lord, that we haven't even thought of yet, and yet we need to, Lord. So we ask that your Holy Spirit would speak to each of us individually, in particular, that we might hear your heart for us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. A great deal happened in that first year that Nehemiah had returned to Jerusalem. We, we saw how that there was first and foremost the physical reformation of the city. The walls and the gates of the city were rebuilt. Uh, the city itself, which was little more than ruin and rubble behind these rebuilt walls, had to be repopulated as well. And we read, for example, in chapter 7 and verse 4, it says, Now the city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it, and the houses had not yet been rebuilt. And then later on in chapter 11, he goes on to say in verse 1 that the people cast lots to bring one out of every ten to live in Jerusalem. So there's a kind of a lottery system. In fact, it's hard for us to imagine, but most people didn't want to live in Jerusalem because it was not an attractive place to be. And that's why it says they actually commended those who voluntarily chose to go live within the city because they would have to really first clear away all the rubble and then rebuild from that. Any of us who have ever remodeled a home know that after you've done it once, you're just going to burn it all down next time. It's just it's so much harder to remodel than it is to start with bare ground. And this is the kind of challenge that was in front of them. But not only did he bring these physical reforms to the city, he brought moral reform. We studied about how there were injustices that were going on, particularly on the part of the wealthy against those who were poor. They were using really financial oppression against the people. They charged them exorbitant interests on monies that they needed to keep their children out of bond slavery or debt slavery, and they were foreclosing on their properties so that the further behind they got, the worse it got, that there was no way for them to actually recover. But basically, the rich were taking everything and enriching themselves at the expense of the common people. And Nehemiah brought this to an end. He stopped it and he forbid it from going forward. 
And then, then thirdly, there were the spiritual reforms. We talked last week about the reading of the Word of God, something that had not been done for a long time, and they began reading it and explaining it so that people on the street would know what the Bible says, that the common man would have a clear understanding of God's will for his life. And it had a profound effect, as we said last week. It brought forth confession on the parts of people as they realized that there were areas of their life that were out of joint with God. They realized there were things that they had been participating in or neglecting that brought them into really a, a, a tension in their relationship with God. And then there came celebration, joy that follows getting into right relationship with God. And thirdly, we saw that there was commitment. In fact, this may have been the most definitive thing that they did because we're told in chapter 9, verse 38, where we read last week, they say, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders are affixing their seals to it. And then he goes on in verse, chapter 10, verse 29, to add, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God, to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of our Lord. It's a little strange for, to us to think about, you know, writing it down and sealing it and all the rest of that, but this was absolutely the strongest commitment that they had within their cultural context that they could make. More than just their words, it was written down and then sealed with a royal seal to indicate that they had promised. And much of what we saw in chapter 10 and parts of chapter 11 was literally the lists of the people who were writing their names down and promising to keep this word. I say this because it's important for us to recognize this was not something they did lightly. This was serious. It was as serious as a heart attack. They were committing with everything they had to doing the right thing. Specifically, there were three besetting sins, if you will, things that they had really fallen into in a major way that they owned and repented of. The first was they had intermarried with foreign cultures. In other words, they say, we promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or to take their daughters for our sons. We read that and we tend to misunderstand the importance of this. You see, it wasn't just simply that they didn't want somebody marrying somebody from a different group. It was much more significant because the nations around them were idolaters and worshipped false gods. And intermarriage often caused their children to become part of that profane system. And so they wanted to keep them, as we would say today, that as a Christian we should marry within the faith, that we should marry those who share the same value systems as us. The second thing that they were in violation of, it says in chapter 10, verse 31, that they weren't keeping the Sabbath. They had said, we will not buy on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Every seventh year, we will forego working in the land and cancel all debts. Now, oftentimes when we use the word Sabbath, we think about going to church on a Saturday or not working on a Saturday, or sometimes people apply it to not working on a Sunday. But it was much broader in the Jewish context than that. It recognized that there was a cycle of life that needed to be observed so that not only were people given the weekend off, if you will, the first culture in the world to actually give people a day off from work, but also every seventh year they were to stop farming their land and leave it dormant. 
And we know today now that it helped the soil to restore itself, but it also put people in a trust relationship that they had to believe that God would give them enough food in the sixth year of their harvest to carry them through to the seventh year and the eighth year. And not only that, would they live off of what would grow naturally from their fields and plants, their vineyards and olive yards, without actually going out and harvesting it. Now, if you look at it in the surface, they mean every seventh year I don't have to work. How many of us would have a problem with this? You know, <laughs> I mean, this sounds really, really good to me. And yet, amazingly, we find that this was something they didn't do because all it takes is one person to violate and appear to get ahead, and everybody quickly will follow in suit. But it even went beyond that. They said also the canceling of all debts. Wouldn't it be beautiful if every seventh year... Your, your, your mortgage broker, your, your, uh, your bank, your, your credit card company would send you a letter and saying, because this is the seventh year that we've been with you, we're forgiving the rest of your debt. <laughs> and yet, essentially, that was a system that God set up for Israel. Now, is it hard to understand why this was not followed? <laughs> the people who benefited from not releasing debts not releasing debt slavery, not releasing mortgages, all the rest. They definitely were the people who were in power and control and did not want it to happen. But they repented of this and they said, we're going to trust God because there's no place that challenges our faith in God more than when it comes to our pocketbooks, right? That's the hardest area. And so here they were, they were saying, we're going to trust God, even though from a very financial point of view, this is a pretty scary step. And thirdly, in verse 39 of chapter 10, they committed, they said, we will not neglect the house of our God. This longer section goes into copious details about how they had stopped bringing their tithes, their offerings, and other things that were necessary for the support of the temple. Because what happened was the Levites in particular and some of the priests just simply stopped serving in the temple because there was no food or monies for them to survive on, so they went to their own farms and supported themselves in that way. So basically they said, we repent of, not, of doing these things and we will be faithful. Well, it appears that they literally did. Everything seems to go well for the next 11 years out of the 12 years that Nehemiah was there. But then a couple of things changed. Number one, Ezra, the man who had brought such spiritual reform, had reintroduced the Word of God to the nation, apparently passed away. And so with his death, also there was a loss of his influence. One of the tra tragic challenges oftentimes the church finds is how do you keep the momentum going forward into the future? How does the church pass the baton on to the next generation? Israel had a problem with that. The church in America and throughout history has had a problem with that. Oftentimes, things that God has done through one person somehow doesn't seem to get passed on effectively to the next generation and so the message and the ministry is lost. But secondly, though, Nehemiah was required to return to Persia. We're not given the details behind it. He had, we're not told how long he had committed to go to Jerusalem in the first place, but I'm sure it wasn't 12 years. And part of the thing is he's required to return to, Bab, to Persia, to the palace in Susa, to the service of King Artaxerxes, whom he worked for. But he was only there, we speculate, for about two years. After two years, he's back in Jerusalem. 
But here's what's interesting. In that short time, things began to revert back to where they had been and do so very rapidly. We call it spiritual erosion, except the idea of erosion is something that slowly washes away. This is more like a landslide. You know, this is like the whole side of the hill falls into the ocean. It doesn't happen just slowly. Suddenly, everything begins to collapse very quickly. So that what we find really was the critical element in all of this was a crisis in leadership. You see, before Nehemiah left for Persia, he installed a new civil leadership. In chapter 7, verse 2, we read this. He says, I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hanani. Now, Hanani is the guy in chapter 1 who first came to Nehemiah and said, the city's in terrible shape. And he was the one who had actually sparked the prayer in Nehemiah's heart, and I suspect had probably been a prayer partner with him as they prayed for four months before God opened the door for them to return. And he goes on, along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel. Here's the chief police military officer in the city. And why did he choose these men? Well, he says, because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most men do. This word in the original is translated integrity in our Bibles. Literally refers to somebody who has a, what we call a noble character. He's reliable, he's faithful, he's steadfast, he's dependable, truthful, trustworthy, honest. The kind of person that you want everybody in your world to be, even if a lot of times you yourself aren't. You really appreciate these people around you, and of course, unless they call you into some kind of accountability, then they're being nosy and need to mind their own business. But, but the problem was that the civil leadership was, was in place, was good guys, but the spiritual leadership becomes another question. You see, Nehemiah had no control over who was in spiritual leadership. This was not a choice left to any ruler, but rather it was something that was based upon heredity. Hananiah and Hananiah had been picked because they were men of really remarkable character and accomplishment. But what about the priesthood? What about particularly the opposite of the high priesthood? Well, that passed from father to son. And in this case, the high priest is a man by the name of Eliashib. He was a man that becomes clear, had a flawed and somewhat duplicitous character, which is kind of surprising because even though he's mentioned nine times in the book of Nehemiah, he's mentioned quite a few times, the first time we meet him is the rebuilding of the wall. He's the very first one to step out and start building the wall around the city after Nehemiah started the project. So we think, wow, that's great. The high priest is setting this example of leadership. But something somewhere happened, and we're not told. And it's always fascinating to me in the Scripture. The Bible spends very little time describing the why behind bad behavior. It's almost like we live in an age where if we can give enough whys behind our bad behavior, then we're excused. If I can say, well, I did it because of this and I did it because of that, and it's as if God's saying, you know, I'm really not interested in your justifications, your rationalizations, your explanations, all that stuff. The bottom line is the moment you realize your behavior isn't right, you have responsibility. 
You have responsibility. It's like when I hear kids talking about, well, my parents did this to me and they did that to me and they were this, lousy. and I said, so you recognize that their choices, behaviors, attitudes were wrong, right? Yes, absolutely. So then why do we need to continue talking about it? Why don't you just pray that God would change you and suddenly you take a new direction in your life? We live in a culture that just loves to circle the wagons. <laughs> we love to go around and around and around and around and around, but never really settling on, okay, where do we go from here? And essentially what we find in, in this situation is that this is a man who, for whatever reasons, and we're not told why, didn't follow through, didn't continue. You see, some, a, a good start is always a good thing. And prevailing through the middle is great, but in the end of the day, how do you finish? When Paul was writing to Paul, Timothy in 2 Timothy regarding his impending death, which was coming, it was his last words to anybody, as he's writing this letter, he says, I am ready to be delivered... I know whom I have believed, I've entrusted myself in Him, and I have a crown awaiting me in glory. He says all these things, and He says, I have run the course, and I have finished it. I have finished the course. I know that I've finished the course that God had called me to live. And so as a result, He finished well, because He always had His view on the end of the goal. But that apparently was not the case of Elisha. In fact, it's interesting. We have the last book of the Old Testament is a book called Malachi, a prophet. And those four chapters, Malachi, we believe, actually was prophesying at this same time that Nehemiah has come back into the land. And Malachi goes into detail, the same way Haggai and Zechariah did in, in Ezra's, before Ezra's time. He goes into detail talking about the spiritual decay that had come into the play, people. And it's ironic because the people he confronts most, he holds most responsible for that decay, were the priests. And I believe, speaking directly even to Eliashib, the high priest, he says this in chapter 2, verse 7 of his prophecy. He said, for the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge. And from his mouth men should seek instruction because he is the messenger of the Lord. But you have turned away and, and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. You have not followed my ways. You have shown partiality. That means bias, or basically you manipulate the Scriptures to suit your own ends in the matters of the law. In other words, what he is saying to Elisheb, I believe here is, you have this position of influence, but there was something that transpired in your heart. There was an inner motivation that began to pervert your objectives. It was no longer about what God wanted. It became really about how you could utilize your position to advantage yourself, and you began to pervert the Scriptures. You're teaching it, but you're not teaching it truly. One of the things that Paul said in Acts 20 when he was basically saying goodbye to the churches that he had ministered to, uh, he said, I have not failed to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. In other words, I don't teach this or that or a piece of this or a piece of that. I give you the whole picture. You need to know it all. You need to see that there's all these different aspects of God's will and calling and purpose for our life. 
That's why when, when people say, you know, I say to them, well, do you read the Bible? And they say, well, I've read the Bible. I said, well, what have you read? Well, I read Ecclesiastes. You know, that's going to give you a perspective, but not a very well-rounded one. You know, if you read Ecclesiastes, you're just going to decide that life is just vain and you probably should commit suicide. You know, that's kind of the, almost what you take away. And you don't get the full picture. If you just read Job, you're going to go around thinking, man, I'm just going to walk with one, with my, <laughs> looking over my shoulder all the time, waiting for God to whack me. You, you, you have to get the whole scriptures. You have to get Genesis to Revelation that you might have a balanced perspective of what God says. That's a responsibility. I would just simply say the reason that we teach the way we teach here, book by book, verse by verse, that's why we go from Genesis to Revelation and all the right, is because we want you to know what the whole Bible says, not just pieces and parts and parcels, but that you might be rounded and grounded in your faith. Because it's much harder when you do that to take the Scriptures and begin to bend it towards one preference. So that on one hand, we know that God wants to bless and prosper His people, but to twist it like the Pharisees did and said, basically, if you're prosperous, it's a sign that God loves you, and if you're not, it's a sign that God doesn't. Now you begin to teach a corrupted, perverted, biased, partial kind of theology that brings imbalance into the lives of people. Well, to say all of that, when Nehemiah returns... He found that outwardly everything looked as it should. Nothing particularly had changed. The walls and the gates are intact. The temple was operating. The high priest was fulfilling his office, at least his public duties. But as I said, below the surface, he soon discovered that the people had become, I think the way that, that Paul described it to Timothy was he said they became lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God having a form of godliness, but denying its power. Now, we read that text, a lover of pleasure, and we immediately go to anything that seems erotic or pleasurable in that sense. But a lover of pleasure literally seen, means a person whose choices are based upon what pleases him or her, as opposed sometimes to what is most pleasing to God. One of the great challenges of the Christian life is that God is going to call you to do things, to say things, to adjust things in your life that you do not immediately find pleasant. He's going to ask you to do things that are big challenging to you. And if you simply say, no, I'm just going to do what makes me happy, what brings me pleasure or is pleasing to me, you soon find that you're really not following God anymore because as Jesus said, broad is the way that leads to destruction, narrow is the path that leads to life. And given, most, given the choice, most of us are always going to pick the broad gate with a long downhill slope. Now, one thing you learn about downhill slopes is once you get to the bottom, you have to come back up. I do this almost every day. I have a beautiful downhill run to the river, and it's beautiful, and it's flat as I run along the river, and then when I get to the end of that road, it starts doing this weird thing. It starts getting elevation and starts going up, and I've discovered that that time, coming down is such a joyous and energetic time, and by the time I get home to my house, I feel like I'm going to have a cardiac arrest. 
Because going back up is a really, really tough thing. And God understands this dynamic about our lives that when we're giving the choice, we're going to say, give me the downhill run. Man, I can get velocity. I can, get, I can really feel good. But also there's going to be those seasons where God say, no, I want you to start going uphill. I want you to fight against the current. My pastor used to put it this way. He said when he was a kid, his mother would always say, he would have these arguments like kids do, well, mom, why can't I? Everybody else is doing it. And her response was, any dead fish can float downstream. It takes a live one to fight the current. <laughs> and that's the simple reality that in the Christian life, we are often called to fight the current. And you know, and I know, that current is starting to get pretty swift, <laughs> It's a current that if we don't go against it, will carry us to places that we'll regret we ever got to. And so basically, we have to make the decision, am I going to please God or am I simply going to please myself? Because what Paul says, what you end up with if you just live to please yourself is you'll have a form of godliness. You'll still do the same kinds of things. You'll, you'll go to church. You'll sit in your pew that you've marked out for yourself. And you, you know, you'll have a Bible and on it will be embossed your name so that people know it belongs to you. You may even read it. You may do a lot of different things. You may serve in various capacities, but somehow it feels like form not function. It feels like something that's not live and exciting and organic. It's not the moment now that I'm walking with Jesus. And that's what happens is you lose that vitality in your spiritual life. I learned this lesson just weeks after I had become a Christian. I was a student at the University of California at Berkeley. And um, I was a pre-law student, and, and uh, I had just gotten saved and had no Christian fellowship, but I started reading my Bible. And I, I came across this passage in Matthew 16, first time I'd read it, it said, Jesus said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. Well, just that day, I had gotten a letter from my fiance, my eventual wife, and uh, she, uh, she lived down in the Monterey area, and she sent me this letter, and, and I opened up. She talked about this ministry where people were getting discipled up in Oregon, and I thought, huh, that's interesting. And then I read this passage, and immediately the two connected in my brain, and I felt God very clearly saying, I want you to leave school and go up there and get discipled in your faith. And I was dead set. I mean, I, was, I thought, that's it. God said it. I'm going to be obedient. I'm going to follow the Lord. I knew it was God. And just as I had come to that conclusion, I hear this knock on my apartment door. And I go to the door, and there's my brother, my best friend in the world to this day, who I love dearly and has been just, you know, he's a joy to my life, okay? And he's there, and I'm so happy to see him, and I'm so excited, so I share with him what I've just discovered, what God just told me to do. He wasn't a Christian. I always trusted him because he was always thoughtful and wise and, you know, made good decisions, and, except for the few times he got arrested for not paying fines and stuff like that. But otherwise, he usually made good decisions. Uh, that's a whole other story. <laughs> but as I explain this to him, he looks at me and goes, you know, I think that's a really great idea, but here's the problem. Mom and Dad have paid for all this stuff, and they're putting you through school. You know, you can't just leave in the middle of the term. Finish the term and then go do what you want to do. And immediately I said, you know, that makes total sense. It made sense from a logical, argumentative point of view, 
but it did not make sense in terms of what God had told me to do. And what happened after that point was my Christian life began to go downhill. There was a silence that arose in my conversation with God. I'd gone from having this guy, he walks with me and he talks with me, he's with me constantly, I just feel the presence of God in my life, this is really amazing because I'm in this really wicked place where there's a lot of wicked things going on, and yet I feel God all around me and, and uh, I'm sharing my experience with Jesus and suddenly it's like God disappeared. And I remember that was a major crisis in my life and I've told the story about going through that crisis, but essentially that didn't change until the day I finally said, okay, God, forgive me, and I packed my bags, and I went and got involved with that ministry, and the rest became history. It changed the entire course of my life. But you have to understand that the Christian life often involves these decisions that may not be logically justifiable to other people. Now, granted, the Scripture also says there's safety in the multitude of counselors, but who are the counselors? <laughs> it also says if you listen to every counselor, you're a fool. Because some people are counselors who are not good counselors, you know. And there are other people that are. And that's why it, there's safety in that multitude if the counsel is godly counsel. But I found that every decision I've ever had to make in my Christian life, in the end of the moment, it came down to me having to decide what I believe with all my heart God wanted me to do. Now, I know there's some of you sitting back there saying, well, what if I make the wrong decision? If you make the wrong decision, but it's motivated by a heart of faith, desiring to please God, God who created the universe has the ability to turn your wrong decision into a right decision. I mean, some of you I know are going, oh, come on, I don't believe that. Oh, okay, you're on your own. <laughs> he does. He, he has this amazing ability that he takes those things that may seem to us to be bad choices and he turns them into things of beauty. He takes our ashes and He makes them into things of beauty. He takes the things that are broken and He makes them whole. He takes the things that are twisted and out of shape, Isaiah tells us, and He makes them straight. Because what God is looking for is not you to be clever enough to always make the right decision. If that were the case, you and I are in deep weeds all the time, right? Our prop is clogged and we're going nowhere because we just do not have the perspective no matter how wise we think we are, no matter how carefully we measure it, at the end of the day, it has to come down to saying, God, your will be done. And when we approach God with that heart in our life, we will find that He will manifest His will. If you look back on the bad decisions, the painful things you've made, how many of those, if not all of them, were things where you simply did what you wanted even though you suspected that there may be a different opinion from God? Well, I'll leave you to sort that out. But in the case of the people of Judah, it's like what Peter noted. He said that they're like a dog returning to their vomit or a, a pig, a sow that is washed and then goes back to wallowing in her mud. We look at it and saying, why would you do that? It's like the other day when I was, went into one of our bathrooms and my dog followed me in there. Actually, I followed him in there and he was drinking water out of the toilet. And then after he was done, I went in and relieved myself. And he stood there looking at me and I could see this question in my, my mouth. says, what are you doing in my water bowl? <laughs> you know, it's like, even my dog understood this. <laughs> so I've never used that again. So, but the whole point is that it's, it's such a, a disturbing image that Peter draws. The dog going back and licking up his own body. It's such a disturbing picture. 
And yet God said, don't you understand, that's what I see when after I've delivered you from things that you turn around and go right back into that same thing again. Basically, the term the Old Testament used was backslide. <laughs> they backslid on every previous promise they had made. We read in, in chapter 12 and verse 10, what does it say? Nehemiah returns to Jerusalem. He says, I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them. And that those responsible for the service, that is of the temple, had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? So these people said, we're going to support the work of God. We're going to be behind it 100%. You can count on us. They had stopped. And basically, they had begun to neglect the house of God, which they had previously said literally, we will no longer neglect the house of God. But now they were doing it again. And with regard to the Sabbath, it says in verse 15, In those days I saw men in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. So here they are as a stark violation of the Sabbath observance. And then when it comes to the issue of intermarriage in verses 23 and 26, he says, Moreover in those days I saw the men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod and Ammon and Moab and then he says, half of their children did not know how to speak the language of Judah. And he warned, went on to warn them why this was a problem. In verse 26, he says, was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? There was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. By foreign men, again, contemporize this a little bit, bring it into our time. When he says foreign women, he doesn't mean you can't marry someone of a different nationality. But he does mean you shouldn't marry somebody of a different faith. Because what happened over and over again is the unbelieving spouse almost always led the believing spouse away from the faith into a false form of religion. I'm not saying it always happens, it just mostly happens. But I think even more troubling was that it appears that all of this had begun with Eliashib, the high priest. Because again, in, in verse 4 and 5 and 8 in chapter 13, it tells, he tells us this little story, this, this pericope of what he discovered when he came back. He said, Eliashib was in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. What are the storerooms? Those are the places where all the tithes and the offerings, particularly the salaries and incomes that were to be provided for the priests and for the Levites, he was in charge of those storerooms, but he was also closely associated with Tobiah. Remember Tobiah? Tobiah, the friend of Sambalat and Geshem, who had opposed and even sought to kill Nehemiah, he had become allied with him after Nehemiah left, and he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the tithes of grain, wine, and oil prescribed for the Levites, singers and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. So keep in mind here, remember when this guy comes to Nehemiah, this priest comes to Nehemiah and says, Nehemiah, they're going to kill you. Let's go hide in the temple so they can't find us. And Nehemiah said, I'm a layman. I'm not a priest. I have no right to go into the temple. I'm not going to do that. Even if my life is risk, I won't go in there. 
Now we have Eliashib taking not a Jew, but a non-Jew who is an enemy of the Jews and actually cleaning out the storeroom, cutting off the supplies to the, to the priests and the Levites who support the temple and using it as a private apartment for this very guy who was their enemy. And we sit back and say, why would you do that? In the end, or in, in the end of the day, we can only assume, but probably correctly, there was some kind of financial or power benefit that accrued to him. Because it even goes on from there. He says there was also, not only talking about unlawful marriages, even priests and future high priests were engaged. It says in, in verse 28, one of the sons of Joiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, in other words, Eliashib's grandson, was son-in-law to Sanballat, the Horonite, the very guy who had been their greatest opponent. In other words, they intermarried with the very people who were their greatest enemies. And I drove him away from me. They defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. So when Nehemiah comes, it's really pretty clear that he finds a situation that is literally beyond comprehension. I didn't go into it, but he responds by, he says, I went and pulled their hair out. Uh, <laughs> someone once said, when Ezra saw the sins of Israel, he pulled his own hair out. When Nehemiah saw the sins of Israel, he pulled their hair out. <laughs> you know? Probably literally means he actually literally pulled the hair out of their beards, not simply to inflict a great deal of pain, although that was a secondary benefit, but because nothing was more shameful than a man not to have a beard in that culture. And so basically he's saying, I'm exposing you for the shame that you seem to have no conscience for. I'm exposing you. And with, let me say this about exposing. You know, God is not in the business of, of exposing us. You know, He doesn't go around trying to get, you know, get your dirty laundry and hang it out for the public to see. What God wants to do is deal with your issues privately. That's why He prescribes in Matthew 18 this process. You know, if you have an issue, go to your brother. If that can't be reconciled, then bring it to two or three more. And if that can't be reconciled, then you bring it to the church. But the worst thing Paul said is that you would do that with the public out there. I mean, there's a very clear prescription for how things are supposed to be dealt with. God's desire is not to expose and shame you. Satan's desire is to expose and shame you. Satan's desire is to embarrass you, to do whatever he can. That's, that's his game plan, but that's not God's. So why did he do this? Well, God will expose you if you have absolutely no humility or brokenness or repentance in the face of your sin. That's the whole point. If you refuse to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit whispering in your heart, then God will allow the world around you to yell at you because you're not listening to what He's trying to say in your heart. But the greater question, I think, is how did all of this happen? Well, there's an old adage that says, the pace of the leader, the pace of the people. As I said before, Malachi seems to reveal to us that it started with the priests. And I would say, first of all, what happened is they allowed greed to motivate them to dishonor God by doing things that they shouldn't. We see they became greedy in terms of their giving. What they started giving to God was the leftovers. 
In, in verse 1 of Malachi, or chapter 1, Malachi, verse 7, he says, You place defiled food on my altar. You bring blind animals for sacrifice. You sacrifice crippled or diseased animals. Is that not wrong? In other words, they were supposed to bring the best of the flock as an offering to God. They were bringing the stuff that they couldn't get rid of. They were bringing God the leftovers. In chapter 3, he talks about their tithes and offerings. He says, will a man rob God? And yet you rob me. And he says, but you ask, how have we robbed you? He says, in tithes and offerings. You're under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. As someone once pointed out, it's the only time that God ever gives us permission to test Him. He says, do it and see what happens. But they also had become greedy in terms of their marriage relationships. They entered into forbidden marriages. Malachi talks about it as well in his second chapter. He says, Judah has desecrated the sanctuary of the Lord, the Lord loves, by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. In other words, a woman who was, married, was a foreigner, she was literally married to the god of that country. She was betrothed before she took her husband. So he said, basically, you've entered into an idolatrous relationship with these foreign women. But in order to facilitate that, you have to get rid of the old to, get, to bring in the new, Right? And so what they did is they started divorcing their wives in order to make room for these new wives. In chapter 2, verse 14, he says, The wife of your youth, because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant, has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and in spirit they are His. And why one? Because He was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce. Isn't it interesting? We live in an age where divorce is so commonplace that the, number, the percentage of Christians that are divorced is equivalent to the percentage of non-Christians. And we find the fact the number of people who are actually getting married is dropping per capita because people are choosing just to live together rather than go through the commitment of marriage. So we see this decay taking place. With it, we start seeing all these social issues arising in our culture of, that are really becoming a drain on the society. And all of them can be linked back, I believe, to divorce. Because what divorce really says is, even though this is going to be devastating to my children, and it always is, I'm, I'm, I'm going to take care of myself and do what pleases me rather than doing what honors God. All I can say is divorce as common as this is not God's will. And whenever we go against God's will, we're inviting difficulty into our life. But secondly, not only were they greedy in their things that they did, they were grumbling against God the whole time because as they gave themselves to these behaviors, the blessing of God began to be removed from their lives. And so basically... They, they were saying, how have you loved us? In other words, God, you don't love us. You don't care about us. They were saying the Lord's table is contemptible, literally worthless. What a burden. In other words, serving God is this heavy burden. And then they even go further. They says, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and, and He is pleased with them. In other words, God is pleased with people who do evil. And where is the God of justice? There's no justice in God. In fact, they even go further. It is futile to serve, the, serve God. 
What did we gain by carrying out his requirements? We call the arrogant blessed. Certainly the evildoers prosper, and even those who challenge God escape. I mean, these are astounding statements that are coming from the priests. They're essentially saying there is no value in following after the Lord because it doesn't pay off. We performed all of his rituals by the letter, just as he told us to, and he hasn't blessed us. As I said, spiritual erosion had become a landslide of destruction. I think the question that we need to really ask ourselves is how do we prevent similar things happening to us? And as I read the text, I came across three things that really stood out to me. And the first thing is I, I called it really a commitment to constancy. And this is the consequence of really taking God seriously in your life. Malachi put it this way in chapter 2, verse 2. He said to the, the priest, you do not set your heart to honor my name. In other words, you aren't determined to, to listen and take what I say seriously. The writer of Hebrews warned, and the, the New Living Translation puts it, so we must listen very carefully to the truth we have heard, or we may drift away from it. I'll never forget, it was one of those amazing moments when I was a kid down in Southern California, floating out on my air raft on the, on the water, laying on my back, just taking in the sun, enjoying the pleasantness of the moment, really kind of dozing in and out of sleep. And all of a sudden, I kind of looked up at the blue sky, and then I sat up and looked around me and realized I was a couple hundred yards out to sea. <laughs> and I remember that moment, this kind of panic hit me. How did I get this far away so quickly, so easily. It took no effort to drift with the tide. And the same thing is true with you and I. It takes no effort to drift. How do you end up drifting away? By not doing anything to prevent it. Why is it that I get up every morning and, and read my Bible and my devotional books and have this prayer time and then my wife and I have a prayer time together. Why do we do this thing every day? Why is it almost every evening we sit down and pray together and talk together? Why do we do these kind of things? Because we realize that if we don't, we will drift away. We'll just get drawn away by the pattern of life. You have to make a concerted effort to be consistent, not perfect, None of us is perfect, and you'll fail oftentimes, but you have to be committed that this is a path I'm going to follow the rest of my life. The secondly, there has to be a commitment to your conscience, a commitment to listen to it. Malachi put it this way in verse 16 of chapter 2. He says, guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. This word, it's interesting. Breaking faith literally translates self-deception. In fact, the New English, English translation put it this way. Pay attention to your conscience and do not be unfaithful. Pay attention to your conscience. You see, Oswald Chambers described the conscience this way. He said, my conscience attaches itself to the highest I know. And then it tells me, what the highest I know demands that I do. When I listen to the highest I know, I'm the best person I can be. When I act on the highest I know, my best character makes a positive difference. And when I am the highest I know, my character, my who I am, inspires others to act according to the highest they know, 
and I become a leader. And I become a leader. This idea of your conscience. Yeah, I have a whole study just based upon all the aspects of conscience, and I don't want to be oversimplistic about it. But at the end of the day, the conscience is this mysterious voice inside of our head, often stimulated by the Spirit of God, certainly stimulated and programmed by reading the Word of God, that basically says, as Chambers said it, this is the highest that I can do for His utmost glory, that I will give my utmost for His highest. That's what the conscience is supposed to be doing. It gets confused by sin and all sorts of other things in this world. But at the end of the day, is my conscience clear before God? Don't come to me and say, well, I have a clear conscience. Great, you may also have a hardened conscience. But is your conscience clear before God? Can you go before the Lord and pray and say, I believe, God, that I'm doing that which is most honoring to you. Now, if you aren't, He'll show you very quickly. But God loves that sincerity, and that's how you keep. You allow yourself to be examined on a regular basis by God. You pray daily, Lord, as Psalm 139 says, search me and know my heart. God, show me my ways, because there's a deception that many of us live with that somehow we know ourselves. Jeremiah warned, he said, the heart of man is desperately wicked. It's deceitful above all things. Who can know it? And the answer that comes in the New Testament when Paul writes to the Corinthians is, we have the mind of Christ. God puts His thought into our hearts. He programs our conscience. And one of the things He tells us is, don't simply trust your own conclusions. They can be terribly long. You ever drawn a conclusion about something or someone that later you discovered was completely inaccurate? Hmm? Anybody else? And I'm not just talking to you guys who want to vote for Trump. I'm, I'm talking about everybody. <laughs> Back to the piano. <laughs> anyway. But thirdly, there has to be a commitment to character. And I wrote in my notes, above consumption. Our desire to consume often causes us to... to compromise our character. Think about it for a moment. Our desire to consume often promotes us to compromise our character. Well, I know it's probably not something I should do, but what the heck. In chapter 12 of Nehemiah, verse 13, he, Nehemiah, when he's dealing with all these issues, listen to how he addressed them. He says, I put Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and and a Levite by name Padiah in charge of the storerooms, in other words, the ones that Eliashib had been controlling, and made Hanan, the son of Zakur, the son of Mataniah, their assistant. Why? Because these men were considered trustworthy. One translator said they were confirmed to be trustworthy men. The message writes, they had a reputation for honesty and hard work. In other words, what did Nehemiah do? He says, I went out and I found men of character and I put them in charge of this responsibility. Eugene Peterson referred to character as he says, a long obedience in the same direction. A long obedience in the same direction. In other words, character doesn't mean that you're perfect, but it means you are in pursuit of God. 
Character is what defines not the moments in your life, but the trajectory of your life over years. You're like the stock market. You'll have your ups and downs, especially this week. But it goes up as it draws near to God. Character, unfortunately, is not the safest path, but it's the surest, the one that will be the most, make you the most secure at the end of the day. May God give us that grace. Let's pray. Father, I ask as we reflect on these things this morning that they would not be just passing notes and some kind of sermonic melody in our head, but they would be things that would begin to anchor themselves in our lives. Lord, we know that we're not saved by our consistency or our constancy or even our character. We're saved by your consistency. We're saved by your constancy. We're saved by your character that, Lord, you persisted to pursue us that we might be saved by simply believing on you being the answer. Deliver us from trying to think of our character, our reputation, our outward image as being the thing that validates us in your eyes simply because it tends to validate us in other people's eyes. We want to never forget, Lord, that we live and follow you because of your faithfulness to us, not our faithfulness to you. Nor are we separated from you because of our unfaithfulness. But what we're talking about here, Father, is whether or not our life will have peace, will have joy, and have power. Right now, Lord, I know in this room there are some of your children, some of your servants, those who believe on you, who have you living inside them, but they have no peace because they know that there's compromise in their life. They have no joy because they know they're walking in disobedience. They have no power because you said, I give my spirit to as many as obey me. And so, Lord, I pray that we would come to that place of humility before you and that we would come to you in the, in the and just really the transparency and the silence of our own prayer life to say, Father, forgive me. Forgive me for the path that I'm on. Forgive me for the choices I'm making, the decisions I'm making, Lord. Forgive me and turn my life around. Lord, we know that if we are faithful to you, you'll take care of our character. If we take care of our character, you'll take care of our reputation. Help us, Lord, to trust you for that. Don't let us make character or reputation or anything like that, or even blessing. Don't let those things become other false gods that we bow down to. We, we submit ourselves to you, Lord, but we know that when we follow you, you just very invisibly and mysteriously, secretly, indelibly transform our character to be conformed to your will. Bring us to that place of surrender in our life, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we continue our time together, we invite you to partake from the elements of communion. The elements of communion are, are, are not given to us as an empty ritual or an observance that we simply do. You can be like the priests in this story. Well, I came and I took communion every week and he didn't fix my financial problems or give me health or make that girl fall in love with me or, you know... Sometimes we get really weird perspectives on things. But what we do when we partake of these elements is we're saying, Lord, 
I want my life to be conformed to yours, that as I look at your divine character, I realize that even though I may never achieve it in my lifetime, that is the ideal that I I lean towards. That I might not only see Jesus, but in every day in incremental ways maybe, I might become more like Jesus in how I treat the world around me, how I deal with the choices and decisions I make. Because as we have that heart of pursuit, then we will experience what we talked about last week, that peace of God will come into our lives. And with it will come a joyfulness that we're no longer defined by our sins. We're defined by His grace. And joy comes into our life. And out of that joy, there comes a power, a power to overcome temptation, but also to be a witness for Jesus in our world. So when you partake of these elements, I I want you to be very mindful that you are coming and saying, Lord Jesus, I partake of this as a symbol of your body because I want to absorb everything that you are. I drink this cup because it cleanses me of my sin. More so, Lord, what it does is it reminds me that you've called me to a new life. I want to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul called us to in Romans 12. And so as you come, I encourage you to do that. If you need prayer, we're up here. A number of us all along the front here will be available for prayer, regardless of what. You don't even have to fill us in on the gritty details. We just are here to agree that God would do His best in your life and that you might know His blessing and His joy, regardless of what your need is today.